We are continuing our sermon series through the season of Lent on themes of Lent. This morning's theme is humility. Before I pray and we read God's word to us, I uh, recommended a book a few weeks ago by Tim Keller uh, called Forgiveness. This morning I want to recommend another book to you because I think several of you actually took me up on that recommendation and read it and I got feedback that you enjoyed it. So here's another one. Uh, It's a classic book by a guy named Andrew Murray and the book's called Humility, the Beauty of Holiness. This is a short book, an easy book to read, and a wonderful thing for us to be reading through the season of Lent. Now, as we approach God's word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, bless now the reading and proclaiming of your holy word by the power of your spirit who first breathed out this word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, and may you be exalted and glorified. And may we, your people, be edified and built up. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and for his sake we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is written. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy Enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, Be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This past Sunday, we began our Lenten sermon series with a sermon on repentance. Repentance is an important aspect of observing this season and preparing for Easter. Lent is a time to acknowledge our sin and to put it to death as we consider the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Pastor Scott explained last Sunday, we want to be grieved in a godly way over our sin in order that we can truly turn from it and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to find forgiveness in life. This is true repentance or repentance unto life. The Westminster Larger Catechism defines us as a saving grace worked in the hearts of sinners by the Spirit and the Word of God, 
by its sinners recognize not only how dangerous it is to commit sins, but also how filthy and hateful they are to God. Understanding that in Christ, God is merciful to those who repent. Sinners suffer such deep sorrow for and hate their sins so much that they turn away from all of them and turn to God, attempting to walk continually with him according to this new obedience in every way. So it isn't simply being grieved over our sin because we got caught or grieved over our sin because we now suffer negative consequences for it. This is how the world grieves sin, and it leads to death. We want to have true contrition of sin that leads us to hate our sins and seeks to put them to death, which turns us to Christ. But in order to get to this place of true repentance, there is something required of us. True humility. The reason for this is because true godly repentance requires us first to see ourselves as we truly are before God. Only then will we see the true offense of our sins and our need for cleansing. And this is the basis of humility. Humility is a right assessment of ourselves before a perfectly holy God. And we're going to come back to that. But first, let's recognize that humility is what James calls us to in this passage before us this morning. This might not be immediately obvious to us because James gets to humility in what might seem to be a sort of roundabout sort of way. This passage begins with James calling out Christians for the divisions and strife that he was observing within this community, which James asserts were caused by selfish desires. But don't miss where James is leading us. It's a call to repentance marked by a true sorrow over sin, which James will point out requires humility. So even though humility isn't mentioned in earnest until the latter half of these 10 verses, if we follow the progression of the passage, then we will discover some very important lessons throughout about humility. So I'm going to break this down into three parts this morning. First, we will see the problem of pride and what it produces in community. Then, as James calls us from pride, we will see, second, how sinful pride before others is rooted in a lack of humility before God. And third, James reveals to us how God enables us, by his grace, to have true humility. So first, James reveals to us the problem of pride and what it produces in community. Now, we can't really talk about humility without talking about pride. Now, you might notice that pride is nowhere mentioned in this passage. What we have are references to quarrels and fights and passions that are at war within and unfulfilled desires that lead to murder. In short, there were some very serious relationship issues within this church community, which James attributes to these individuals' self-centered desires. A self-centeredness within any community is trouble. 
when everyone is just trying to gratify himself or herself, especially when this happens at any cost, it is only going to lead to disaster. If you've been watching the news at all uh, these past few weeks and you have seen this murder trial that's been going on in South Carolina, a a man was just convicted of brutally murdering his wife and son. And why would he commit such a horrible crime? It is alleged that he was trying to cover his own financial crimes. He got greedy and stole millions of dollars to support a lavish lifestyle and a drug habit. And when this was threatened to be revealed, he did what he could to divert attention away from himself to prevent his misdeeds from ever seeing the light of day. He ruthlessly and violently murdered those whom he was responsible to love and protect and provide for. This is an extreme case of self-centered desires, but it shows us what the idolatry of the self does. And this is what James is pointing us to, an idolatry of the self. He doesn't explicitly call it that, but that is what it is. And it becomes clear when he calls those guilty of these sins adulterers in verse 4. It's the same word that the that the Old Testament prophets use to describe Israel's unfaithfulness. And what was the cause of their unfaithfulness? It was idolatry. Israel had turned away from the one true God and had chased after foreign gods. They had set their hearts on the things of this world. They had forgotten the God who had graciously delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and had begun to love and worship and serve things that were not God. James also refers to their covetousness in verse 2. Remember what Paul says about covetousness in Colossians 3. What does he call it? Idolatry. Now, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We can make idols of anything and everything, material possessions, money, power, popularity, worldly pleasure, other people, and even ourselves. And that is what is at issue here. As we've already said, James is calling out these individuals, not just for their fighting and their violence, but for their self-centeredness. The idolatry is an idolatry of the self. And what is idolatry of the self at its root? It is pride. Exalting one's self is pride. It is displacing God and putting ourselves at the center. It is believing that we can be independent of God, that we have no need of God. It is seeking the glory and honor that rightly belongs to God for ourselves. This is what pride is is. So even though James also doesn't explicitly use this term pride, make no mistake, this is at the center of his rebuke and his correction. James is addressing this selfish ambition that has caused all of these problems in this community. He wants us to see it for what it is. It is the idolatry of the self, pride. And pride causes all of these issues that James references 
here and many, many more because pride isn't just the root of idolatry of the self, but it is the root of all sin. Pride is the root of all sin. Augustine said this. So did Aquinas, Calvin, Luther, C.S. Lewis, many, many more. Pride is at the root of all sin. Think about it. What caused Satan to be cast out of heaven? Pride. Many have rightly seen what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 14 concerning the king of Babylon to be an allusion to Satan's fall from heaven. Verse 12 and following, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Satan sought to exalt himself to the place of God. The devil became the devil because of pride. And Satan came whispering the poison of pride into the ears of our first parents, tempting them in the garden with the fruit of the tree that they were instructed not to eat from. The horrible lie that he told them was that they could be what? Like God. This is what Satan told Eve, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So it was pride that caused our federal head, Adam, to be plunged into sin and all of his posterity with him. And pride has been at the heart of all rebellion against God ever since. All other sins find their origin in this sin that tries to displace God as God. It is a deadly serious problem for humanity. And James here can easily identify this issue of pride because of the rotten fruit it is producing in this community. But James doesn't just want to address the symptoms of the pride. He doesn't just tell them to quit arguing, quit fighting. And notice that the solution he gives also isn't simply telling them to practice humility with one another. No, he wants to take us to the very heart of the issue. This is the only solution. So second, even as James calls them out of their pride and urges them to turn away from it, James reveals how a sinful pride before others is rooted in a lack of humility before God. Notice in verse 4 how James shifts the conversation from relationships in community to relationship with God. Their selfishness points to a worldliness which exposes that God's glory is not their goal. The issue isn't simply that these individuals have sought to exalt themselves above other people. They have, first and foremost, sought to exalt themselves above God. And this is why James will instruct them to humble themselves before the Lord. And so what we find here is that there is a connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with others. James has shown us pride in the form that we can easily recognize. Fighting is caused by selfish ambition. And this is extremely helpful because ultimately it allows us to be brought to the true origin of the problem, a lack of humility before God, which might not always be so concrete. It might not always e be so easy to identify. Uh, 
Pride, you see, is very deceitful, which makes it all the more deadly, whether it is obvious in the community or not. Even as it might be obvious here, as James points it out, it might not be so obvious to us. And that is because it isn't always causing horrible issues in communities. Certainly, there is a lesson here in this passage for us, though, There is a very easy way for us to examine ourselves in regard to pride. Look closely at our relationships with others. True humility before others, seeking to put others before ourselves, is evidence of our humility before God. It's evidence that this humility is authentic. In other words, our love of God is measured by our love of our neighbor. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? But pride can come in in much more subtle forms. It might even come in the form of being respectable people. It might not be causing obvious issues in the community. The devil doesn't need us to be murderers. We can be plenty prideful without becoming criminals. He doesn't mind us putting on worldly virtues, thinking that to do otherwise would be beneath us. We can take great pride in the good things that we do. We can take great pride in dressing up and showing up. We can take great pride in charitable deeds. We can take great pride in being good students, good children, good spouses, good parents, good employees, good citizens. And people will tell us how wonderful we are. And we will start to believe it. And next thing you know, we have come to believe that we really have no need of God that we can manage things just fine on our own. Dearly beloved, we can even take good pride and great pride in being good Christians and having good doctrine. Think about the disciples who spent all that time at the feet of Jesus, and yet, right before he was crucified, what were they arguing about? Who would be the greatest in his kingdom? It is surely a warning to us that we can even take pride in our religiosity and our proximity to Jesus. And again, the great issue here at the end of the day is the lack of humility before God. Pride must be rooted out. Without humility, we cannot come before God and truly repent and be in relationship with him. But dearly beloved, we have an added challenge We live in a particularly difficult time in culture where people are very concerned with self-esteem, right? Children grow up hearing about how wonderful they are. They grow up learning the catechism of this culture. Who are you? I am whoever I make myself to be. What can you do? I can do anything I set my mind to do. What is everyone around you there for? To make sure that I am happy and to affirm me, right? It is a catechism of self-centeredness. Not too long ago, a study was done in which teenagers were polled about what they thought God was concerned with. An overwhelming number of them answered that he was concerned with their happiness, When the researchers asked them where they got this idea, guess what their answer was? Well, I guess it was my parents who always said to me that they just wanted me to be 
happy. We don't want our little ones growing up with self-confidence issues. We want them to be healthy and well-adjusted, so we think this is a loving thing to do. We would never want to, to crush their little spirit or, or for them to believe that they're incapable of doing something. We want them to believe in themselves. What we are doing, though, is building pride in them. By the way, the teenagers who responded in this way identified as Christians. This emphasis on self-esteem has permeated the body of Christ. It, it isn't simply in the secular religion of this world that throws pride parades to celebrate being whatever you want apart from God. This is an attitude within the church of Jesus Christ. We have been encouraged to see ourselves as better than we are, and pride is very deceptive. By the way, that study determined that young people in the church today do not have a Trinitarian faith. They don't articulate a belief in a holy God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They actually, functionally, are what the researchers call therapeutic, moralistic deists. They believe that while God wants them to do good things, God mainly exists to serve them and make them happy. And this shouldn't surprise us because our view of ourselves and our view of God, they are intricately tied together. There's a reason why John Calvin begins his great work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, with the knowledge of self and the knowledge of God. And this knowledge works in two ways. We, recognizing our own miserable estate, can be led to look upward, whereby we gain an understanding of God's goodness. As Calvin states, each of us must be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good, and purity of righteousness rests in the Lord alone. We learn humility then by seeing what we lack and turning to God to find in him our all in all. We might, though, be very, dis we might be very pleased with ourselves. And, and many are, and we might never seek the Lord. But the knowledge of God and knowledge of self also works the other way around. Calvin writes, it is certain that the man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating God to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves, listen to this, we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs, we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. For because all of us are inclined by nature to hypocrisy, a kind of empty image of righteousness in the place of righteousness itself abundantly satisfies us. Calvin warns us of how easily we can convince ourselves that we are good and capable people. Having a correct understanding of God, though, will help 
to reveal to us a true knowledge of ourselves and uncover the deceitfulness of pride. Now, I'd love to read to you all that Calvin writes concerning this matter. I'll refrain, go and read the first section of Calvin's Institutes, which can be found free online. Uh, but, but I would like to share just one more thing that Calvin wrote concerning how our knowledge of God helps to correct our knowledge of self. Uh, Calvin stated that if we have caught a glimpse of God's perfection, quote, then what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is, what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. And if we are to be humble before God, this sort of knowledge of self and the knowledge of God is essential. At the end of the day, the individuals to whom James wrote did not have an accurate view of themselves or God. They thought too little of God and too much of themselves. The lesson for us here is that if we are to be humble before God, then we must see ourselves honestly as we truly are, as miserable sinners wrecked by the fall, bent on living for ourselves and for our own glory, and unable to save ourselves or do any good apart from God. And we must see God as he truly is, perfect in holiness, jealous in his love for us, but gracious in his approach to us. This leads us to our third and final point. James reveals to us how God enables us by his grace to have true humility. Despite our desiring to be our own gods and rebelling against the one true God, we worship a God who is gracious and merciful. James preaches to us the good news about who God is, starting in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 is actually particularly difficult to translate. It can either be translated as the ESV translates it here, with a meaning of God being jealous for the spirit he created in us to worship him, or it can be translated as the spirit he made to live in us envies immensely, which points to how we don't function as God created us to function. In our sinful pride, our natural inclination is not to worship God as he created us to do, but to worship ourselves. And I actually think the second translation is what James intended. I'm not going to get into the reasons for that. But regardless of how you translate that verse, the next verse says this, but he gives more grace. This is the glorious reality. God does not leave us in our rebellion against us in our pride. He provides grace in abundance to pull us from the pit of our pride. He comes to rescue us in his son, Jesus Christ. Andrew Murray articulates so beautifully what God has accomplished in sending his son to us. Remembering that Adam and Satan's fall came as a result of pride. So Murray writes, in heaven and earth, Pride is the gate, the birth, and the curse of hell. Therefore, to say that nothing can be our redemption except the restoration of the lost humility. 
the original and only true relationship of the creature to its God. So Jesus came to bring humility back to earth, to make us sharers in it and by it to save us. And if we look, we find this idea all throughout the Gospels and then succinctly articulated in Philippians 2, which tells us that it was in humility that Christ Jesus came to earth. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus left his throne in heaven and became human in order that we might be made like him, that we might be transformed, no longer being like the old Adam who was marked by pride and rebellion against God, but that we would be made new like Christ, the new Adam who was obedient to God, humble before his heavenly father, entirely dependent upon him. So Jesus humbled himself in leaving heaven and becoming a creature. He humbled himself in living among us as a servant, revealing to us what humility before God and neighbor looks like. But that wasn't all. Philippians 2 tells us, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see? We rebelled against God in our pride, and the just punishment for that is death and hell. Jesus didn't just leave heaven for us. He didn't just become a man for us. He didn't just live as a servant in perfect obedience for us. In his humility, Jesus even took the punishment we deserved in order that we might be redeemed from the curse of our sin and might be given new life in him. Andrew Murray continues his beautiful articulation of this, stating, his humility gave his death its value and became our redemption. Now the salvation he makes known is nothing less and nothing else than a communication of his own life and death, his own nature and attitude, his own humility as the ground and root of his relationship to God and his redeeming work. Jesus Christ took the place and fulfilled the destiny of man as a creature by his life of perfect humility. His humility is our salvation. His salvation is our humility. I would love to spend about an hour or more going through all the scriptures with you in which Jesus models humility and explicitly teaches it. Whether it is through the Beatitudes or or washing his disciples' feet, the Gospels are replete with lessons on humility, and they all point to the reality that we are hopeless and helpless without Jesus. You want to kill the sin of pride in your life? Meditate on the life and work of Jesus Christ. And since we are in the season of Lent, let me challenge you to do this. Spend time meditating on the passion of Jesus and especially on the cross of Christ. If we spend time considering the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, then we are sure to grow in humility. Spending time at the foot of the cross will melt our pride. It helps us in several ways. First, it helps us to be constantly mindful of our sin. Second, it helps us to see the horrible but true cost of our sin. And third, it casts us upon the mercy of God, which reminds us of our utter dependence upon him. These all help us to grow in knowledge of self and knowledge of God. And 
And praise be to God that Jesus gives us his spirit to apply his redemptive work to our lives. To not simply see his life as an example of humility before God that's out of reach, but to actually be transformed into the image of him who loves us enough to give himself for us. But don't stop at his crucifixion. We must go further. Philippians 2 tells us that because of his humility, Christ was exalted. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name as above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. James tells us to mourn over our sins and repent of them, but don't misunderstand what James is saying in verses 9 and 10. Humility doesn't ultimately look like defeat. It isn't... It, It's acknowledging our sinful nature and it's putting it to death and it requires contrition, but humility doesn't end in despair and sadness. Humility ends in exaltation. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's what James reminds us of. When we finally fall before God and acknowledge that we are dependent upon him, we can submit to his will and stop chasing after everything that doesn't satisfy. And we can find that all of our joy is tied up in God. He is our satisfaction. C.S. Lewis said that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, be humble, delightfully humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all of your life. You want happiness? Pursue humility. So the reality of the Christian life is that the path of exaltation for us is a path downward. We live in a a world of upward mobility, being told we must look out for ourselves, seek to get ahead at all costs, seek to be independent and self-sustaining. But we as Christians are called to live with a downward mobility, acknowledging our weakness, looking to God for our every need. And if this is our posture before God, then we too will be exalted with Jesus Christ. So James urges us to quit pursuing the things of this world. Pursue humility, whereby you bow before him and you give him the glory and honor he is rightly due. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending your son. He left his throne in heaven. He did not seek equality with you, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, becoming man among us. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Lord, we pray that you would give us the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Help us to see ourselves as we truly are, that we might approach you with humility. And Lord, may our humility before you result in humility before others. And may this result in peace in our community and joy in our lives. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a 
Christ is Lord, to the glory 